You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, Pikane and Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakota, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here at the Department of Political Science. Just a caution before we get started. This podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cameron. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Maureen Hebert. Hi, Maureen. Hey, Gavin. Hi, everyone. And Josh Goldstein. Hi, Hi Josh. Gavin. Hey, Maureen. Great to be with you in the studio again. In this episode, we're probing the margins of terrorism. We'll be having a conversation about incel violence and how it challenges our understanding of what constitutes terrorism and the concept of the political within political violence. Joining us today is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, Jacob Ware. Jacob joins us from the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Gavin. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for being here, and it's nice to talk to you. Uh, Jacob is a research fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he studies domestic and international terrorism and counterterrorism. Together with Bruce Hoffman, he's the author of God, Guns and Sedition, Far-Right Terrorism in America, which is forthcoming from Columbia University Press. In his addition to his work at CFR, Jacob is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, where he teaches a class on domestic terrorism. He holds an MA in Security Studies from Georgetown and an MA Honours in International Relations and Modern History from the University of St. Andrews, which is also where I went to uh, grad school. So uh, <laughs> it's very exciting to have you here on that basis as well, Jacob. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, before we dive into the nitty gritty of your argument and your case analysis, I'd like to take a step back and get a sense of your academic origin story. Um, how did you become interested in your broader research focus in terrorism and the theme for today? Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for, for having me. It's a, it's a real honor to be involved in the project. Um, so my interest in, ter in terrorism really stems, I think, from being the very proud graduate of two universities that have, I think, distinguished themselves as uh, really counter-terrorism powerhouses. Uh, University of St. Andrews, uh, we have the Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, which is a well-known uh, program. And then I'm a graduate, as you mentioned, of the Security Studies program at Georgetown University, which uh, which has a very uh, strong and distinguished uh, terrorism studies program. So I uh, have kind of had no choice based on my uh, educational <laughs> journey. Uh, a personal interest in this uh, stems from when I was a teenager and a pretty devastating terrorist attack occurred in Oslo, in Norway mm -hmm. in 2011. Uh, I am uh, a Swedish citizen by uh, by birth. So uh, that was something that affected a lot of us in that region of the world very deeply um, in terms of just being such a, a clear example of the brutality and barbarity mm. of terrorism in its purest form. The fact that somebody could... Uh, ambush and hunt children to such a devastating and lethal effect that is hard to shake i think mm -hmm. and uh so i had an interest in neo-nazi and white supremacist extremism and terrorism really since before it became a major national security issue in the us where i now work uh so by the time 2019 kind of came around and and this was a a central issue for us working in, in the terrorism space. Uh, it had been a personal and professional interest of mine for, for a long time. Okay, that, that's that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and before we, we sort of get going on the implications of your case, can you briefly just explain to our listeners what it is that we're talking about today? Um, can you just briefly explain the concept of incel violence? What What is it? 
Um, how does it differ from other types of violence? What are some of the leading examples of it? Sure. Uh, so let me start off by talking through incel ideology, what it means at its core. Uh, the incel ideology is based on the concept of involuntary celibacy, which is the idea that certain physical or biological or social or mental characteristics prevent men from having access to some kind of sexual marketplace. Um, now, they argue that that marketplace is dominated by so-called chads and stacys, who are the kind of uh, idealized, hypersexualized men and women who exclude incels from participating from this space. Uh, women are portrayed as irredeemably shallow and single-minded, making uh, mating decisions based purely on physical factors such as attractiveness, height, uh, and race. And if men did not win that genetic lottery, they're doomed to languish uh, without access to that sexual marketplace forever. So, of course, the result from that is an embittered community of male uh, online forum dwellers who perceive themselves to be social outcasts and turn their ire primarily against women, um, but also against men uh, and couples. I'm happy to kind of talk through some of the, the nuances and the violence that we see. Uh, but let me first point to the two main incel uh, incidents that we've seen that have defined the violence that this movement uh, has perpetrated. The first occurred in 2014 on a university campus in California, University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, where an individual stabbed his three male roommates to death in their apartment uh, before proceeding on a uh, shooting and uh, car ramming rampage first at the at, at a sorority house on the campus and then throughout the streets of that uh, of that town. Six people were murdered before mm. the individual took his own life. The second incident that is probably familiar, I would think, to uh, Canadian audiences, in part because we've just had the five-year anniversary mm -hmm. this month, uh, was a van ramming attack that occurred in Toronto in, uh, or it might be last month, actually, April uh, 2018 where uh, an individual drove his rented van down Young Street seeking to kill uh, chads. And he ended up killing 10 people, 10 of whom were women. Um, those are the two notorious incidents that we've seen, but uh, we've seen several other attacks over the years that have varying degrees of uh, inceldom as a central factor. Okay, thank you. And I mean, I'm reluctant to get bogged down in sort of this discussion with definitions of, of terrorism, because basically we would never um, sort of move on to anything else. Um, but, but there is a debate within the literature on whether incel violence should be considered terrorism. And just so we sort of understand your perspective, do, do you see incel violence as a form of terrorism? Or if so, why? And if not, perhaps why? I do. So, so let me start by with a very quick kind of generic definition of terrorism. Usually, uh, I, I take the definition of, of my colleague, Bruce Hoffman, another St. Andrews uh, uh, veteran. Uh, he, he writes that terrorism is, first of all, political. It's violence. It's perpetrated by a non-state actor, uh, and it's designed to spread some kind of psychological um, fear within a targeted community. So those are the four uh, definitions that you'll see across. Uh, those are the four elements that you'll see across most definitions. Uh, now, if you go down that list, uh, an incident like uh, the the Santa Barbara attack, where an individual released a manifesto. Uh, clearly kind of outlining his ideology, uh, hits on basically all of those categories. Now, the debate tends to be on the first of those elements, which is uh, the political factor, uh, political or ideological. Uh, some would argue that incel violence doesn't have a clear uh, political element in terms of there's no real policy... Um, designed outcome here, right? Typically, incel violence isn't really designed to provoke some kind of political change. 
Uh, and that's true. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not an ideology that underpins it. That includes an in-group uh, that defines an out-group and targets them with violence. So um, I believe that there's enough here to to uh, delineate incel violence as um, as an as an ideology and therefore um, as political violence and therefore um, as terrorism. Yeah, and I mean the distinction you're making there is also characteristic of quite a lot of right-wing violence as well that, that is interested in creating social change. So it, it's sort of political in the broader sense, but not necessarily in the sort of electoral uh, or, or sort of governmental sense. So so social yeah. change as, as a political act is, I, I think, a, a fairly common way of interpreting that political piece within definitions of terrorism. I would agree. Yeah. Um, when we talk about incel violence, are we really talking about a new phenomenon, do you think? Or are we talking about a new name for an older phenomenon? Because there's been violence against women um, and mass, mass casualty violence against women well before the concept of incel violence. So, so do you think that this is a new, a new thing or is this simply where we're re- recategorizing something that that has a relatively long history well i think that's one of the challenges that those of us working on this issue have have faced a little bit is is trying to uh analyze that recategorization and i would i would reframe it as their recategorization as opposed to our recategorization um while still aiming to place it within that broader history that you refer to um let me let me give a disclaimer on my studies into this topic and that is that in my experience there's really four categories of scholars who study incels one is the security community the counterterrorism community and that's where i come from mm. and we look at radicalization and tactics and targeting um and and the violence uh, when it emerges on scene Secondly, you have the feminist community mm -hmm. who are looking more at uh, societal structures and uh, the patriarchy and issues like toxicity and that longer history of violence. Third, you have psychologists who look more at mental health and vulnerabilities and susceptibilities. And fourth, you have uh, linguists who look at language and how it manifests in the online spaces. So uh, there is a rich tradition of scholarship that has looked at this and has looked at this issue over time and has placed incels within that broader, uh, that broader history. I try to incorporate that into my work as much as I can um, while looking uh, more into how incels are similar or different to uh, other manifestations of political violence that we see today. Um, so how they are, are, are similar in the trends that we see in the violence to, for mm. example, the violent far right that you mentioned earlier or, or jihadist violence. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of the moves within terrorism studies in the last few years has been to look at older forms of violence and to ask whether we should recategorize that t t to sort of be within the the terrorism um, uh, uh, bracket. And so, for example, there's been work on whether we should look at the US in the latter half of the 19th century and sort of violence against African-Americans, for example, about whether, whether that constituted terrorism. So the, the, there's a sort of wider move within, within terrorism studies here. Um, if we accept that sort of that attempt to to critically reappraise what constitutes terrorism, why do you think this sort of violence, whether we talk about it as incel violence or whether we talk about it as as something else, why do you think it's been sort of underrepresented within our understandings of of what constitutes terrorism? That's a tough question. I think it's probably because we conceptualize terrorism as uh, mass casualty attacks. Mm. Um, so 
uh, a lot of the, the the more recent acts of incel terrorism, for example, like the one, the two I mentioned earlier, they can be kind of subsumed under this broader uh, understanding that we have of ISIS attacks and white supremacist attacks, and we can see the through lines. Um, a lot of the violence that, for example, the feminist community uh, would point to as being what they call everyday terrorism mm. hasn't necessarily involved that mass casualty element. And so, uh, and so we haven't thought of it in that, in those terms, this is something that, that I've tried to grapple with in my work on incels. I mean, I, I've co-authored an article where we outlined a typology of the violence and one of the categories that we had, we called ex post facto inceldom, hmm. which was hmm. really acts that in, in anything but the name that we gave them were exactly the same story. And there's, there's a prominent one in Canada from, I believe, 1989, yep. uh, a, a mass shooting that occurred in Montreal at a university right. where an individual mm -hmm. by the name of Mark Lapine walked into a university there and separated uh, in a classroom the, the men from the women, and he murdered 14 women in that classroom. Yep. Um, that is quite easy looking back to think about as uh, an act of terrorism, but I think partly because, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe those cases weren't as, as common, or maybe it's just because of that discussion we had earlier about whether we consider misogyny and male supremacy to be ideological enough in its own right to be considered terrorism. Maybe that's the, the, the key element there. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, when that episode happened at the Ecole Polytechnique, uh, these were engineering students, right? So these were women engineering students who were who were shot. Uh, it seems to be that the reaction wasn't to think about it as a terrorist That's attack. Right. The way it was dealt with was as a gun control issue, That's right. interestingly. Um, one thing I'd like to do is sort of return to the way that uh, incels talk about the, you know, identity of uh, the people that they are most vexed about and, and against whom they use uh, some forms of violence. So in this podcast, we've returned in the discussion of different forms of violence to the role that identity construction plays, you know, so how perpetrators see themselves, how they conceptualize their victims or their targets, um, and how perpetrators understand the relationship between themselves and their victims. So as you as you pointed out in incel ideology and in violence, we have the identities of the Stacys and the Chads. Um, and what I find curious about this is that there's two rather different formulations here that have a different kind of grappling with the actual material conditions of of actual real life. So the Stacys, in in a kind of general way, are are portrayed as being quite powerful because of this, the feminist movement, even though in real life, uh, women still often are subordinate to men in many ways in terms of, you know, pay for equal work, uh, you know, representation in political institutions and boardrooms, the reality of the double shift of employment and then household, childcare, elder care duties, and so on. But as you pointed out, when it comes to the chads, these targets of incel animus are privileged men you know, who really are quite powerful in the real world. They have all the political, economic, and social power afforded to men that's further bolstered by their wonderful physical appearance. So with the women, there's a pronounced disconnect, it seems, between material conditions in the real world versus how incels see them. And this constitutes what Eric Vogelin, the political philosopher that we heard about in an earlier episode from our contributor Barry Cooper called a second reality, a kind of fantastical reality. But with the so-called chads, the material conditions of the real world and incel perceptions of these men do seem to align. So Maybe you could talk, if, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit more about how incels uh, construct the Stacy and Chad identities and how they grapple with the objective conditions of the real world, or or is it really the case that, that the real world isn't actually part of this calculation? Another scholar, you mentioned a scholar who's worked on this, another great scholar who's done excellent work on this is a feminist scholar by the name of Michael Kimmel. 
um, who writes about something he calls aggrieved entitlement. Mm. And I think that's something that captures this idea, right? There is there is a certain uh, economic and social and political power that these men in the insel movement feel that they have been promised by virtue of their sex. Um, and they've arrived at a stage in life evidently where uh, for whatever reason, you know, in their minds, it's their looks. Uh, there are probably real reasons why th there are real grievances. Uh, they have found that those entitlements are not forthcoming. Mm. Um, those, in this case, the sexual entitlements are not forthcoming. Um, and I think that explains a little bit why you have this buildup of rage within them um, to try to respond, uh, in this case, violently to that perceived humiliation, that perceived emasculation. I'll point out that I think you see this this core idea of uh, aggrieved entitlement in, in other forms of violence too. You mm -hmm. see it in mm -hmm. uh, white supremacists who are uh, inspired by something we call great replacement theory, yes. uh, where yeah. they see themselves as superior white men who again have been promised a certain set of, uh, you know, political, economic, social, sexual riches based on their presence, their status as white men, only to find that for whatever reasons, those are not forthcoming. And so they lash out violently against another target that they blame, in their case, um, you know, the black community or mm -hmm. the Jewish community. Um, I, I think that's the best way of thinking through how somebody who uh, you know, perhaps fundamentally understands the advantages that they have been given uh, might react violently when those advantages uh, seem to be taken away from them. Yeah, I think it kind of echoes, you know, the idea of in prospect theory of, of loss, uh, being in the domain of losses and then kind of subsequent loss compensation, right? That that there's a society, and maybe this is a, a sort of a question in and of itself, is it the case that incels sort of see that men have lost a previous status mm. in society because of the feminist movement? Um, and then it's a kind of of kind of in being in the domain of losses, as this theory suggests, that is coupled with a kind of humiliation? or Or is it more a matter of their own kind of particular situation that they think that they find themselves in. So not all men are on the losing end of feminism, only themselves. Is, is that the mm -hmm. better way to think about it? I think it's a little bit of both. So definitely we see strong uh, anti-feminism elements within the insult community. And the insult community in itself is a reactionary response to advances in women's rights and women's social and economic advancement. So that's certainly one thing, right? There is that ideological groundswell among these men who say that we have to respond as a community um, against the rise of feminism, which is taking away our rights. But there is also that more personal element. And I think, uh, you know, you mentioned whether this was something that, that only they see that they're the victims. That's part of it. Uh, but I also think that personal grievances, in general, personal vulnerabilities play a very big role in the insult community. So we see very high levels of uh, mental illness, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. including autism, depression disorder, including depression. Uh, we see high levels of uh, a history of being bullied. We see uh, very frequently histories of violence in the home, where an individual might be a victim of violence in the home. Uh, uh, we see these individuals come out of broken homes as well. So uh, I think to an extent, there's also that personal element of we have this overarching worldview. We have people who are moving through, um, through the world and are not satisfied with their lot and are often dealing with some, some, some legitimate and very painful vulnerabilities and they encounter this this worldview this mentality this ideology that allows them to affix blame for their own pain mm -hmm. on an outgroup mm 
Um, and in the worst cases, obviously, as we've seen, they target that outgroup with with violence, and that violence is the explosion of uh, of of a response to that aggrieved entitlement. It's a response to the humiliation and the emasculation that these these individuals have have felt. One of the things that I think that at least it seems to me that that marks perhaps incel ideology and and then you know the kind of steps before violence occur is that this is seems to be very much a kind of social media or kind of online kind of of movement or or existence so i wonder if if you could just maybe address two maybe related questions one is do you think that social media fosters a particular form of isolation that then kind of facilitates radicalization. So you have a group of people who are online in this kind of very kind of closed social media echo chamber, and then they just kind of talk amongst themselves, and and this kind of brings out the most radical views perhaps among them. And then the second related question is, you know, how does the incel movement's use of social media compare, for example, to uh, jihadi terrorist groups like the Islamic State, which, as I understand it, at least in its heyday, used social media quite extensively for recruitment and radicalization aimed at least in part in drawing in individuals to carry out lone wolf attacks in the west you know if they weren't able to actually go to live in syria and iraq under the islamic state i think one of the reasons why incel ideology is so dangerous and why it has uh expanded so much in a social media age is because it's fundamentally self-reinforcing so if you are traveling through the world and you think that Mm. you are somewhat isolated uh somewhat uh lonely uh you're not really making a lot of friends in the real world you're certainly having trouble uh, developing romantic or sexual relationships with women um then retreating into that online space um and 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 shutting the the offline world out and turning away from your offline relationships is only going to uh to compound that grievance uh so you see a lot of people in a lot of young incels in the incel chat rooms uh who engage in kind of self radicalizing uh behavior mm-hmm. and language where they they uh, they're almost a support system for each other to uh, uh, to commiserate about how hard life is outside mm-hmm. these chat rooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the irony, obviously, is that um, when you are spending your life angry in these communities um, and spending all your time online and developing a really violently, virulently misogynistic view against women. Then that is that much more unlikely to actually yes. result in, <laughs> right, in exactly. offline relationships that these individuals are seeking. So that's the kind of irony, and I think that's why social media has played such a big role um, in, in 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 compounding this threat and, and spreading it wider. Uh, with regards to how incels differ or are similar to other uh, to other extremist movements, I think fundamentally it's a relatively similar experience in the sense that they primarily gather online. Uh, They employ both mainstream social media platforms as well as uh, more niche or specific chat rooms to spread their ideology both more broadly uh, in terms of a wider radicalization, uh, wider radicalization opportunities, and also more deeply in terms of really developing that ideology in in more closed spaces. one difference uh with kind of jihadist groups or far-right groups is sometimes in those networks we see more centralized propaganda production so the islamic state for example still plays a role uh in in disseminating propaganda with the group uh we see that as well in the far-right space With incel, and then you know the community, the foot soldiers will will participate and spread that wider, and and they'll start off a conversation about the outgroup. With incels, there is no uh, central 
directional coordination at all. There never has been and there probably never will be. There is no such thing as incel terrorist groups. So this is a completely mm. decentralized, diffuse network. And the propaganda that comes out, the radicalization that comes out is all grassroots. Um, and it's all about, uh, again, this very twisted and very aggressive and very misogynistic support network uh, that is trying to, um, to answer real or perceived grievances that these individuals have in their personal lives offline and and uh and mobilizing individuals who have those grievances uh against an outgroup uh along the lines of this violent ideology hmm now this kind of in some ways you've you've answered my my next question but I, i'm going to ask it anyway and and you can kind of tell me whether my impression here is is correct or not so so my impression is that that incels are are looking in part for you know some kind of online community as you said to kind mm. of commiserate with each other although interestingly they spend a lot of that time you know um expressing their situation of like continued loneliness and isolation and so on but i also wondered if despite its diffuse um kind of status as a movement if even if we want to call it that are they also looking for some kind of source of authority in individuals like Jordan Peterson, for example? Mm. So would it be accurate to say that Peterson is somehow part of or looked up to within the incel movement? And uh, and do incels look to him or other individuals as a source of authority and leadership? Or are they not really looking for that kind of thing? I think Jordan Peterson is seen uh, by some in the movement as a voice uh, for them as a uh, kind of a mainstreamed intellectual who can express some of the grievances that they uh, that they share. Um, but I think the biggest, the, the more important element is the sense of belonging uh, and purpose and community that a lot of individuals get when they engage in these forums. And that's really hard to talk about. It's it's something that is really hard to talk about in counterterrorism writ large because ultimately we're always talking about uh, uh, people who've committed horrific crimes mm -hmm. and ruined people's lives and uh, taken family members away. Mm -hmm. um, but some of these individuals uh, are people who are really, really, really suffering, mm -hmm. and 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 that. Is, is real suffering, it's true suffering, it's legitimate suffering. Um, and, and, and so this community gives those people a sense of belonging. Now, there is research ongoing right now, I haven't participated in it, that looks at some of these platforms as a, um, a de-radicalization hmm. element because mm -hmm. they actually give that community and that belonging and that might be enough for some. Obviously, that always has to be tempered with the reality that we have seen legitimate acts of violence perpetrated by this community uh, in the name of the, the ideology and the tenets that they rally around. Um, and that is a really, really hard thing um, to balance um, how much we think that these communities are, are a de-radicalizing impact and how much we think that they are a, a pathway to violence. And you have now actually anticipated the final question I will ask before I give it to Josh. And that is basically de-radicalization programs sort of, you know, by society, authorities, that kind of thing. So the Calgary Police Service, you know, in our city here have a program called Redirect. And it's, I gather, it's designed to engage in sort of de-radicalization. I think mostly it was designed to head off, you know, jihadi radicalization. Are there programs that you know of that are are designed for people who are drawn to the incel kind of ideology and and potentially ha could become violent or have become violent? Um, and if and if these kind of programs exist, are they similar to is the program or the way to de-radicalize somebody similar to how it would work for potential or jihadi terrorist recruits or? Or are these two groups of people sufficiently different that the de-radicalization programs for incels would have to look or do look uh, considerably different? So first of all, let me say yes, 
there are programs and and I, I do want to say I, I I always enjoy I always think it's important to do this when we talk about incels if any listeners are uh, listening to this conversation and they think they have people in their lives who are uh, who are vulnerable or who are on this pathway uh, reach out to somebody there are support services who work on this very explicitly uh, and there is help out there so do not feel like uh, like this is I mean, it is an enormous challenge and it's very difficult uh, to to work on de-radicalization, but these support systems do exist and they can be reached. So please mm. feel free to reach out to, to this team and we can put you in touch uh, with people. So let me first say, so I, I, I'll answer your second question first, which is more about, you know, how applicable this is to other ideologies. In my experience, most organizations that work on de-radicalization tend not to deal with ideologies at all. Interesting. Um, so whether somebody's an incel or whether somebody is a jihadist or whether somebody's a white supremacist, these organizations typically say that doesn't actually matter. Uh, what really matters is the fact that behind that ideology, there is a reason why somebody is hmm. uh, is getting attracted to these to extremism and to anger and hatred as opposed to the alternative. So most of these groups uh tend to work on trying to identify and then address whatever those vulnerabilities or susceptibilities are whether it's like i said earlier mental health whether it's a history of just being lonely and bullied whether it's substance abuse whether it's an abusive parent um in most of these de-radicalization cases uh social workers or psychiatrists or law enforcement will approach these individuals and the first task will be to try to identify not what the ideology is but why the ideology is an answer for this person and then they work on these issues so to answer your question yes right it is translatable because very frequently we see the same underlying grievances whether somebody's an incel or whether somebody's a white supremacist or whether somebody's a jihadist uh and that's especially true in a social media age where I argue the barriers to entry to extremism have lowered, where now we're frequently mm. seeing 16-year-olds whose personal grievances are awful and totally normal. And, and, and rather than reach out to the, to the usual uh, support services that we all grew up with in our lives, mm -hmm. uh, they are turning to support services mm. online who are feeding them noxious ideologies uh, and bringing them into their fold instead of instead of uh, broader society's fold. So that to answer that question, yes, it's translatable. De-radicalization, as I mentioned earlier, is really hard. So is counter-radicalization. And I'll just point to two reasons why it's hard. One is, I'll, I'll point to three reasons, actually. One is no two stories are ever the same. So you can't, there is no one uh, theory of radicalization. There's no one theory of de-radicalization. So even if something worked perfectly with one case, uh, it might not work perfectly with the other case. Two is metrics, right? It's really hard to know, uh, first of all, that somebody has de-radicalized because we don't actually know what that means, mm, right? Right, right? Uh, on the one hand, you can say, well, somebody who's not violent anymore is demobilized and that might be enough right from a pure counterterrorism standpoint but they might still be a vicious incel right and course. so you still yeah. have a radicalization and extremism problem so that's one issue on the metrics the other is um it's also just really hard to know to measure disengagement because mm. uh when this movement is fully online um, you're not talking about neo-Nazis who, you know, have disengaged from, who are not going to concerts anymore and who have erased their Nazi tattoos, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're talking really about people who are stepping away from the forums. And how can you ever count that? Um, right, right, right. How can right. you ever know perfectly how many people you actually put on that pathway out of the movement? Without that kind of metric, it's hard to get government funding, for example, because you can't prove, right, in an ideal de-radicalization and counter-radicalization world, you can't you can never prove how many there were because there would be none so right. uh it's 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 hard from that angle the third element is scale uh because these interventions that uh, individuals do that organizations work on often involve uh at the very least one to one human work often it's it's teams that will work on one individual mm -hmm. 
And when you're talking about across the radicalization spectrum, I don't know, ten, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are, are engaged in extremist rhetoric online uh, and offline, you are just not going to be able to scale up uh, to handle that unless you have millions of social workers specifically focused on extremism, which we don't have. So um, it is it is quite possible. De-radicalization programming is quite possibly the best tool we have to get people out of these movements and get them on a better path. Um, but it is really difficult uh, and it's difficult to measure and it's difficult to scale. Great. It's been a really, really fascinating conversation. And I remember that Maureen and I were in uh, Toronto and we were uh, normally, we, we have lived in Toronto a whole bunch of years and we're, we're back there. Maureen had a uh, an, an event that she was was at, and it was in North York, where the incel attack in 2018 had happened. It was, I think, a year a year later, mm -hmm. and I, I remember the the kind of shock of realization. Oh wait, this is the this is the part of Young Street where it happened, and then we found the memorial to the victims. And there's something about the poignancy of this relatively small number, still incredibly tragic, a number of victims and a little. At that point, they were just uh, kind of human-sized, white kind of abstractions, forms that were that were set up as a temporary memorial, and and it was a very moving, very powerful, and kind of visceral thing, mm -hmm. almost almost more than than uh, nine eleven, because the the numbers, you know, are in some ways so big, it's it's hard to keep the the reality the visceralness of it in 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 front of you and i, I remember being struck by that so it's kind of uh, bringing back those those mm -hmm. sorts of uh, uh thoughts and and i guess i want to to focus on some of these ideas that that you've just been mentioning jacob uh about the the weight of ideas in the lives of of incels and and i think one one thing that when you first are reading about the incel movement that uh, that that strikes one is the very elaborate, almost baroque vocabulary that's that's in invoked. Very complex relations between these categories and so on, um, and and it seems to Im embody involve. Uh, a well-worked-out view, or what has the appearance of a kind of well-worked-out view of the of the world, and at the center of it, at least it appears from the uh, from the outside, is an idea of sexual entitlement, where but of of a very particular sort. And I'm wondering if you could uh, begin by telling us what does this idea of sexual entitlement involved for the incels? That is, what form of relations, of satisfactions, of life would meet the, the demands of saying, now my life is on track, now I am living the way I ought to live? That's a tremendous question that might be better suited for an incel uh, himself, <laughs> because uh, I can't answer that for you. Um, uh, I think, you know, the sexuality element is one, but I think it's also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, these are reactionary individuals and they, like many extremists and terrorist groups, right, they quote unquote yearn for the old days. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. They want to see a society where... Uh, you know, women are controlled and belonging to the home and uh, take care of their men uh, and take care of the home and sexually satisfy their men. And that's their job. And that's life. Uh, you get various levels of, um, I think, extremist interpretations of that and uh, solutions for that. Uh, and that will depend on the individual. Uh, some people, for example, uh, you know, will will argue for like a mass imprisonment of women because mm -hmm. they have reached the point where they fundamentally have lost uh, the right to make their own decisions because mm -hmm. women are so depraved. Um, mm -hmm. That is that is kind of one, you know, extreme. And then there are those who who really just have that uh, that that kind of 
core grievance of loneliness and sadness and yearning for company um and and they have i don't know such a tough time engaging with their own personal traumas uh that it's just easier for them to adapt this really hateful ideology and 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 blame somebody instead of instead of really reflect on on their own uh shortcomings um so it's a it's a really good question and i think um you know it's it's tough to to really put yourself in the minds of these people sometimes and and try to uh, to translate yeah no no you're 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 exactly right and it is one of the really difficult obligations of the sort of work that we all do to say this is really distasteful and distasteful undersells it but yet there's a kind of a a logic there's there's something going on that isn't just random that isn't just insanity that there is something there and a kind of obligation to say okay well what what allows it to to make sense and and one sort of on on this idea one one interesting thing that 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 struck me is as you were talking is this emphasis on the sexual marketplace that is the idea that there's some kind of societal factor at at work and and also the idea which which uh, didn't come up uh, yet in our conversation of the blue pill, the red pill, the black pill, an idea of a kind of sense of of a kind of hidden reality that incels have have access to. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more uh, uh, about this emphasis on this blue pill, red pill, and even uh, I guess black pill, and and the idea that there's some structure, some force out there that individuals are battling against or being crushed by. Yeah. Uh, so it's one of the great ironies, I think, of, of the insult ideology, that they really are, in a, in a very, very niche way, they're like Marxists, mm. right? Because they perceive there to be a class structure, and they're calling for a revolution. So they are sexual mar Marxists right. uh, who are looking to completely upend this uh, this marketplace. Um, that's, that's first of all, fascinating. Uh, the second element about the, about the pills, you know, maybe I should have mentioned this a bit earlier because it's, it is a key element of the ideology. Uh, we'll be familiar to those of you who have watched the matrix, uh, incels talk as, as all kind of, uh, online extremists do, they'll talk about the blue pill and the red pill, the blue pill being, um, the ability to continue to live in a world of, uh, illusion mm. uh, with with realities hidden from you, and the red pill being uh, something that you can uh, an awakening that you can undergo in order to discover the truths about the world mm. and your place in it. Uh, obviously, the red pill for incels is uh, you know the idea that women are uh, you know single minded uh, and only care about certain characteristics, mm -hmm. uh, and that incels can never uh, um, reach that. The black pill is is something that's unique to incels, and and in my view, it's probably the element that makes incel violence uh, uh, so deadly. The black pill states that not only will you be uh, exposed to the realities of the world, but uh, you will learn that there is fundamentally nothing you can do about uh, it. Okay, um, you are doomed, and this is. Uh, this is your lot, and it will be like this forever because you just didn't get, you didn't win the genetic lottery. Why does that matter? Because it's a nihilistic worldview, and once that's how you see the world and your place in it, it leads very, very quickly to uh, really. There's one outcome, and that's suicide. Right. And I, I, I want to. I, I always try to dwell on this for a moment in these mm. conversations and note that we talk about terrorist attacks that incels have committed, and they're very important. But first and foremost, uh, the greatest number of victims of incel violence by far, and it's not comparable, uh, is incels themselves. Mm. Right? We see massive levels of suicides within this community, and this impacts the violence too. Uh, because almost every uh, act of incel violence that we see, including the Toronto van attacker, even though he survived, yeah. uh, is an act of murder-suicide. Yeah. Uh, the, the mentality that underpins this violence is very much, um, I am going to kill myself, it's your fault, and I'm going to take you down with me. Mm. Um, and that leads to more lethal violence because... 
a suicidal terrorist, as we've seen with uh, jihadist violence in the Western world. Uh, a suicidal terrorist can cause a lot more damage because he doesn't have to plan the most difficult part of a terrorist operation, which is um, getting away. Mm -hmm. um, so the black pill uh, is an extremely damaging worldview that these individuals have, again, both to themselves and to the victims of um, of their violence. Wow. So we've we've talked about the relationship of the incel movement to other extremist movements. And I'm wondering if I could shift it a little bit and talk about the relationship, if if any, between the incel movements and other political movements that have sex, sexual desire, sexual expression at their at their center piece. And and we do have two very broad movements that I think everyone is everyone is familiar with. One that is centered around creating a private space or at least a space away from state regulation and policing and, and oversight to to create a um a place in life in which one can live out one's desires and attractions. And we see that expressed in the movement towards same-sex marriage, uh, towards uh, the the pro-choice movement, and so on. That my love, my body, should not be regulated by society and by the state. And and then we've we've seen a kind of uh, more more recently a real kind of counter movement with the appearance of a moral panic in which all of those spaces away from state policing and regulation now are objects of, of attack, of attempted and real re-regulation, exclusion, that those spaces ought not to exist, the anti-trans, the pro-life um, sorts of uh, uh, movements that we've, that we've recently seen. So is it, is it a, a coincidence? Uh, is there a connection between these much more mainstream movements that have sex at their uh, center and the rise of the incel movement? I don't know. That's a fascinating question. Um, you know, for me, I think, uh, you know, I, I associate incel ideology with being something that is less organized, mainstream and politicized and being something that is more uh, associated with kind of youthful, uh, youthful, just angers and frustrations. Mm. Um, incels are, you know, young, yep. often very young. So, um, you know, I, I, I've always thought of this as being more of a, uh, of a kind of a narrow, um, extremist manifestation of, uh, something that has always existed in our society. Okay. So, you know, the idea, listen, the reality is the idea that a 16-year-old uh, straight boy is going to ask out a girl or advance or make sexual yeah. advances on a girl and be turned away, that's not new. No. Um, the fact that we have violence because of that rejection is not new either. Mm -hmm. But I do think the fact that we have an ideology that exists purely based on that slight, that is new. Um, and uh, and um, I think it's, uh, it's just given voice and, and given and, and radicalized uh, that moment that is otherwise typically, you know, innocent and benign. It's, it's taken that moment and it's created an enemy from it. Um, and and that is the that is the thing that I feel is relatively novel with this with this ideology. Yeah, no, I think that's I, I think that's I think that's right. And and this this question, right? What what gives it this 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 weight? Uh, and why and why now? I think that I think those are really really interesting 
really interesting questions that I think you're 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 getting at. So do you? I, and this is the the last question I'll ask, and it's just purely purely speculative. Every movement begins somewhere, right? That's a that. Communism as a movement begins, you know, as a kind of fringe, fringe thing, and it gathers its adherence, it gathers its organization. Maureen mentioned this a little bit with uh, Jordan Peterson and the sort of slow, not, I'm, I don't know enough about Jordan Peterson to, to say anything about his own uh, in, in uh, intentions. I mean, he has mentioned in the, in his own lectures how much he profits from uh, from his lectures, from his books, uh, quite a, a, a wealthy man by his own admissions because of it. So do you, pure speculation, do you, do you see the incel movement as a kind of odd, an odd point in time? And we'll look back at this and go, can, can you believe that this was, that this was a thing? Or, or is there a kind of dynamic and power to it? That that is, you know, has the potential to to go somewhere to to become a political uh, a political movement. So let me answer that question by reflecting for a second on something I've been thinking a lot about, uh, which is an issue, a major issue that we face in the United States, and that is school shootings. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You see a lot of incels who talk with great admiration about our lineage of uh, school shooters in the mm. US. Some of the incel attacks that we've seen, for example, one that I didn't discuss, which is a little bit wishy-washy, but it's the Parkland uh, right. shooting that targeted a school. Uh, one of my concerns in this space is that uh, a lot of those incidents, uh, Columbine, uh, Virginia Tech 2000, Columbine 1999, Virginia Tech 2007, Sandy Hook 2012. Mm -hmm. Those were all before the incel movement emerged. Mm -hmm. And then the ones after that too. So Parkland 2018 was kind of incel related. Uh, Uvalde, which is mm -hmm. the one year anniversary right. tomorrow, uh, certainly uh, is, is one of those. Um, I worry that the incel movement the insult ideology has given a name to something that is right. a far bigger issue than any of us can really comprehend uh the insult attacks we've seen are relatively narrow uh where somebody says like yep this was my ideology but when you look at the individuals and you look at their pathway you look at their grievances you look at their story and you look at the kind of people they're targeting there is not a big gulf between somebody like Right, Elliot Roger, the Santa Barbara right. shooter, so mm -hmm. school shooter, and somebody like uh, the Virginia Tech shooter in 20, 2007. They basically said the exact same thing. Um, so to answer your question more directly, counterterrorism analysts usually think of threats as a nexus between intent and capability. Mm. Um, you're really asking, a, I think, an intent question uh, I'm answering it a little bit with a capability answer. Mm. The reality is in the US, less so in Canada, but in the US, our capability is so high mm. that these attacks are inevitable. Okay. And they're going to continue, whether we call it incel right. violence or not. Uh, there is absolutely no good reason to believe that we're going to stop seeing alienated, angry, sexually frustrated young men open fire on their classmates that's just not going to stop until we get mm -hmm. a grip on the capability question right. um whether we call that quote unquote incel or not uh i think you know is ultimately a kind of an academic uh question as opposed to a practical question i mean the, the practicality of whether somebody can be cl classified as an incel or not when there's you know 20 dead six-year-olds right. in a school in texas is kind of yeah uh, uh, doesn't matter that much. Mm. Right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jacob, for joining us. It's been a fascinating, um, wide-ranging, and very thought-provoking conversation. So I really appreciate you talking to us this afternoon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank very you. much, Jacob. 
Jacob will be here at the University of Calgary on June 8th and 9th, 2023 for our Oddities of Violence workshop, made possible through funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about Jacob's work on incel violence, drop by or you can live stream the workshop. Details will be on our Oddities of Violence website. You've been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Join us for our next episode when we continue with our discussion of the Oddities of Violence. Our guest then will be Fanny Lafontaine from Laval University, who will be discussing genocide and international law, and your host for that will be Maureen Hebert. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time. <laughs>